A few colleagues have been telling me a lot about Alvis Motorcars. Well, regaling in all its positive sense might be a better word. The company that became Alvis Car and Engineering was a British manufacturing business in Coventry, started in 1919 and ceased in 1967. Why did the subject come up? Let me be very brief in the introduction. It started when my brother-in-law showed me the workings of an SU carburetor. Stick with me here. The SU carburetor was built in volume for most of the 20th century. My first car had one. I mentioned this on Facebook. There was a wave of nostalgic comments. One from a colleague, well-known motoring commentator, Will Hagen. He spoke of the famous Alvis Speed 20, which had triple SU carburetors. To be regaled, as in entertained, amused and delighted, is just not a strong enough word. There is much to talk about, and who better to do that than Will Hagen himself, who joins me on the line now. Will, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, David. You know, we could be talking here forever. Oh, yes. There's a lot to talk about. When you talk of a company, I mean, the development of motoring generally, but in this period, in the 1920s, 30s, when the Alvis Car Company really was, I was going to say revolutionary, they were in a way. I mean, they'd made a front-wheel drive production car in 1928. They had the world's first all-synchro four-speed gearbox in about 1933. They had built-in jacks and all four wheels in their cars in the 1930s. They had adjustable dampers, for goodness sake. You know, they were really looking to the future, and indeed, in that era, very, very highly regarded. You know, that era is often referred to as the Roaring Twenties, and we think of F. Scott Fitzgerald and the great Gatsby as as, uh, elite in that, yet it was the Roaring Twenties in motoring as well. Bit of grease under the fingernails, but some really great developments. It really was, um, because we'd come out of the veteran car era, which officially finished in uh, 1919 and we got into what was labelled the vintage era which actually technically is only the 10 years 1920 to 1930 and then we then get to PVTs post-vintage thoroughbreds where the the car industry and enthusiasts looked down their noses and said well it all finished with the depression and things but there were some companies still doing the right thing and trying to make cars to a standard instead of to a price Mm. And we'll call them PVTs. And the Speed 20 and later the Speed 25 that you referred to certainly came into that category. They were 100 mile an hour motor cars in the 1930s. Big brakes, good handling, independent front suspension and uh, massive lighting on them and 12 volt electrical systems, which, of course, Voxy didn't have in the 1950s. So, you know, it was a really interesting era indeed. Well, you talk about the 1950s. I met a guy the other day with a lovely 1959 Carmen gear. When they first came out, they had about 27 kilowatts. The Alvis 20, I think, had 67 kilowatts way back in the 20s. That's fantastic. Well, they're not only... I mean, the power outputs back in those days were modest by today's standards, but equally, the cars were much lighter, David. And I can remember my early days in the 1960s in the Alvis Car Club, and people used to look at speed 20s and 25s and say they were heavy cars. But they're the weight now of um, things like Toyota Corollas almost, you know, that everything... The equipment level's gone up, the safety's gone up in, in modern cars, and so they've got heavier and heavier. And they've needed to have more power to keep up with the the expected customer performance. Speed 20 and 25. The 20 was a two and a half litre car. The Speed 25 was a three and a half litre. And then they went and they they were 
not only um, triple SU carburetors, they had twin SU fuel pumps, and there was a little brass notice on the rocker cover that said the fan belt need only be fitted in really hot weather. And there was actually uh, an eccentric uh, butterfly um, uh, nut uh, adjusting the fan belt tension, and only it, it was just a drive to the fan belt. It didn't drive other things as it does in modern cars, so you could remove it without any effect. But it had enough cooling, in other words, in the engine that most of the time you didn't have to fit the fan belt. And uh, they were a very lively car. They were a much quicker car than the, the SS90 and the SS100 Jag. The, the Jaguars were marvellous-looking cars, and they were two-door or two-door, two-seater cars. But the 90 particularly was a quite modest-performing car with a modest engine in it, whereas these were overhead valve, inline six-cylinder engines. And later, indeed... There was a 4.3-litre version, which, um, when it went on display in Melbourne for the motor show down there, after that, um, the Victorian police actually ran one as a, as a police car. <laughs> and they won races, the 200. Oh, yes, yes. Well, that's right. Um, go back to Brooklands in the 1920s. And Alvis's one of its early models, their first model was a thing called the 1030, but by... Their fourth model, they'd got to a thing called a 1250, originally with a 1.5-litre engine, and then it went up to 1,645 cc's. And uh, these claimed 50-odd horsepower back in those days. Now, racing was at Brooklands. It was the world's first banked circuit ahead of Indianapolis in the United States. And there was an event called the JCC 200, the Junior Car Club 200. Well, in 1923... An Alvis 1250 with 1.6 litre engine averaged 93.29 miles an hour for the 200 mile race to win it. And indeed, it was the first British brand to win that race and uh, outran a Bugatti, outran a Delahaye and so on. The front wheel drive ones too, I think they raced at Le Mans as well and did well. They did. Um, The front wheel drive was as you'd expect in the early days of a technology so different, having to to steer and drive the same set of wheels, which, you know, even back in the early days of the Mini, as you'd remember, David, getting constant velocity joints and so on right was pretty difficult. So it didn't have a long and illustrious history, but they did race it at Le Mans. And along with Sunbeam and Bentley, they were the only British brand in the 1920s that were officially building race cars and to Grand Prix race formulae. It was a a rub-off that probably, apart from that race at Brooklands in 1923, didn't work as well for Alvis as it did, for instance, for Bentley. But uh, nevertheless, it it brought a culture to the company. That 1920s was when Bent got in and won uh, the Le Mans race. and Five times. Yeah, and Ferrari was uh, you know, doing his racing to build up to then eventually, ultimately, to build uh, road cars. So it was really the Roaring Twenties, wasn't it? Oh, my word. And, uh, of course, the funny thing was that uh, while I say talk of, of Alvis and, and it not going further with its racing than it would have probably liked, um, you had Bentley that in a very short period won five Le Mans 24-hour races and was... Uh, scoffed at by Ettore Bugatti, and he said, Monsieur Bentley is a very clever man. Hmm. He builds the fastest trucks in Europe. (laughs) Because the the Bentleys were big and they were heavy. But, of course, by the end of their 
glorious 10-odd years in the 1920s and five Le Mans wins, they were broke. And they were being propped up by um, a wealthy uh, Bentley driver and uh, investor. And uh, W.O. Bentley had run out of money and the company, as I say, was broken by the early 30s. Uh, had merged with Rolls-Royce. Now, the Alvis, uh, John Lang from the Victorian Alvis Club, is restoring a Speed 20, an SA, I think he called it, Speed 20. Yeah. His mate, Barry Turner, I believe, is putting a bit together. They're getting the front end from a number of places. There's a rumour that that front end that they've got used to belong to a car that you owned. <laughs> yes, I bought a Speed 20 from Barry Turner. And I have to say, I didn't, I didn't look after it very well. In fact, we had a fire in it in my parents' backyard or the backyard of my parents' house. Mm. There is some folklore about that. that uh... <laughs> well, I must ask you more about it. <laughs> you see whether, whether it's right and whether my memory sort of coincides with it. <laughs> well, I think there is a, an, an element of folklore. I won't say fake news, it's, uh, but it does get a little bit... Uh, well, perhaps exaggerated, but who knows? But yeah. nonetheless, you owned one, and the, it had that front independent suspension, and they are looking at using that in restoring another car. Well, excellent, and I'm delighted to hear that. The car I had was a four-door four Tourer. It was an open car, and it wasn't in good order, in truth, when I got it. And uh, back in those days, the, you needed a fair bit of money or expertise, and I didn't have either, <laughs> to restore these things. They had wood frame bodies, and uh, to get somebody to do the wood frame sections that actually gave the strength to the body was, uh, was quite expensive because it was all hand done. Yes. And uh, so one way and another, it, um, we, we had our problems with that. But uh, what had happened was that I'd had some modest cars and uh, I got introduced to Alvis and realized very quickly that here was a car with sporty performance, great integrity in terms of the way that it worked uh, way ahead, better brakes, suspension system and so on than some of the British cars of the 1950s that had been made to a price. And, for instance, you remember uh, lever-arm shock absorbers on, on Austins of the early 1950s and things which got tired after about 10 miles on a bumpy Australian road, you know, and the car lurched all over the place. They also built some rather stunning-looking cars, the Ducksback. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, they were based on the, spe on the 1250. In fact, in the 1250 days, that, that car that uh, won at Brooklands in 1923 at 93-odd miles an hour average speed, the production versions of those came with various bodies. You could have a, a four-door, four-seater tourer body. You could have a sedan body. But you could also have, as you say, David, a, a duck's back or a beetle back. And a duck's back is the most surprising car. It comes down, firstly... There's only one door for this two... Well, it's more than a two-seater car because it's got a dicky seat in the back. But in the main section of the car, it's a two-seater car with a, a door on the left-hand side. Down the right-hand side, coming straight out of the engine, out through the side of the bonnet and along the side of the car, almost where the driver could rest his arm, is a massive exhaust pipe. <laughs> and it goes right down the right-hand side of the car to the, down to the tail where it's got a lovely fishtail into the exhaust... And then the body pinches in to a pointed tail, and it's undercut as well. So under the, un, in the undercut is the spare wheel, all exposed. And then in the upper section of the undercut 
is a three-piece opening section where a third passenger can sit. And <laughs> they were 23-inch wheels and very spindly, so they were quite narrow. And uh, so they weren't turning very fast at, uh, at 60 or 70 miles an hour. And indeed, a duck's back or a beetle back, a sports-bodied 1250 in the 1920s with a 1.6-litre engine was guaranteed to do 80 miles an hour. Now, as you'd know, you could go to the 1960s and not get a 1.6-litre car that would do 80 miles an hour. Mm. The duck's back has got almost a little bit of chitty-chitty bang-bang about it. Oh, it has. It's wonderful. And, you know, there are people like Max Houston, for instance, who was one of my early educators on matters of Alvis. Um, I joined the Alvis Car Club, (coughs) pardon me, in the 1960s, and I remember sitting in a meeting one night, and they talked about the all-night trial coming up. And I said, I was sitting next door to Max, who was a motor mechanic. He had a service station, uh, which was basically a workshop that also sold a bit of petrol on the outskirts of Sydney. And I said, what's the all-night trial? And he said, a thinly disguised road race. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually, later in my later years for the uh, Alvis Car Club, I organized one of the all-night trials. And with Alvis's and indeed one Rolls-Royce, we had an informal and not approved hill climb up Hawkesbury Hill in the middle of the night, which was all started and stopped by tooting horns and things. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you, you could have the most wonderful fun, David. I think the up to 1957, the Australian land speed record was set on public roads. Yeah, that's right. Out, um, it wasn't Coonabarra brand, but it, it was, yes. David Mackay went there. He drove Mary Seeds AC... A two-litre car, which, of course, later became the AC Cobra with Ford V8 engines in it. But he also took a DB3S Aston Martin out there, which, incidentally, talking of Astons and DB3Ss, blow me down. I'm going along the old Great North Road out of Sydney yesterday, and a DB3S, a whole swag of Alvises, uh, sorry, of uh, Aston Martins, were coming past me going to a, a function, I think, in Wollombi, and uh, one of them was a DB3S, which basically was a, a Le Mans-type racing car, but also, like D-type Jaguars and C-type Jaguars, could be registered for the road, and it drove past me. I was, uh, I was mightily impressed. I love that period, uh, you know, right up to the DB5. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Alvis that they're restoring, there is a rumour, and uh, as we talked about folklore, it's got to be proved yet, that it may have been one of the three cars used in Hollywood movies in the 1930s. Aha! But that's yet to be proved. As you know, Will, that can be a very hard task. (laughs) These cars ended up in barns and things like that for uh, lost from uh, a long time. That's right. Well, in fact, when I was in the Alvis Car Club, one of the members uh, had a 1250, and then they found another duck's back at Waterloo um, in Sydney. And blow me down, the chassis number was one different to the one that the club member owned, and the engine number was two different. And uh, it was always then became known as the Waterloo duck's back, you know. But um, there's about 700-odd 1250s still extant around the world. And indeed, a guy, a member of the club in the 1960s, and imagine this, Rob Gunnell and his wife Anne had a 1250 tourer. And they thought that this should go back to England, to Holyhead Road, Coventry. 
And so they drove this 19, Kirka 1925 car, they drove it Sydney to Perth, they put it on a ship, they unloaded it in India, and they drove across country to England. And indeed, when they got to a particular point, and it was very relevant to take a photograph of the car at this point, and it was, it was a busy section of road. And there's an English policeman with his Bobby's helmet on and everything. And they said, look, we're from Australia. We've got this car. We want to take a photo there with no other traffic around. Certainly, sir. And he stopped all the traffic and let them take the photograph of this car that had done its return journey to where it was born, David. You know, just lovely. <laughs> it's almost along the line Colin Chapman used to say people went back to Le Mans to watch the race because they wanted to return to the place where they were originally conceived. <laughs> That's another story and a different well issue altogether. <laughs> yeah, and, and David, you talked too of, of motor racing with Alvis, and of course one of, one of the most famous motor racers at Maroubra Speedway, which is another banked track and uh, built at Maroubra in Sydney, and that had a short life in the 1920s and into the early 1930s, was a guy called Phil Garlick. Oh, yes. And he drove an Alvis. And uh, he was very successful there. In fact, he'd won the Lucky Devil's Trophy in about 1926, and that was given to people who'd taken the most risk and survived. And, uh, in fact, it was shortly after that, in early 1927, that he was one of about five people that died in uh, crashes at Maroubra Speedway. But his Alvis uh, was a very quick car there, and he raced against people like Boyd Edkins, oh. who formed later the company that became a Holden dealer, Boyd Ed, because he raced a Vauxhall, and it had a lot of history with Vauxhall, and the factory in England had helped him with some uh, very competitive cars to race at Maroubra. At South Head Cemetery in Sydney, one of the, the most outstanding headstones there is of Phil Garlick. It's an enormous thing, and it shows him models at the steering wheel with helmet on of his car. And uh, as I say, that's at South Head Cemetery where he was uh, buried. I had written an introduction, I took it out, but maybe I should have left it in, the sentence that said, when you get a couple of motoring people together, the subject can range over many different <laughs> aspects. And I'll finish on this one. I think for Alvis, the great designer of the Mini, Izzy Gonis, worked for the company yes, for a while. He did, 19, early 1950s, for about three years. He came up with a design of a car which... They thought was lovely, but they thought was going to be too expensive and they couldn't afford to do it. And he went on and then, of course, did the Mini Morris Minor and then later the Mini Minor, which was just a most amazing car. But it, it was in that post-war period where Alvis, along with Rover and Packard in America and so on, were trying to find their way in a sense. They had enormous reputations and the war had changed all that. They'd made... Um, uh, aero engines in 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 fact they designed aero engines in the 1930s and the first hovercraft the srn6 i think it was called had an alvis leonides nine-cylinder uh, aero engine in it and they later went on to make military vehicles too six-wheeled rubber-tired vehicles not tracked vehicles um armored uh, carriers and things alvis saladin and saracen so they had quite a, an illustrious post-war history, but finished with car manufacture, as you said in your intro, hmm. in 1967. About the time, incidentally, 
when His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh had an Alvis Graber, a Graber, a Swiss Graber uh, designed body on an Alvis, which was one of their later um, models. Both wars had, you know, both world wars had an amazing impact, wasn't it? I mean, even the SU Carburetta Company had an impact on the war, by the war, and it changed things in many ways, yet, as we say, then led to this, I guess, boom period of development, technical development of the 20s, of which the Alvis clearly was a great leader in, in the different and, and in innovative technology. It, it really was. It was an outstanding company, no question about it. Um, and uh, but it sort of rose to making quite expensive cars. For instance, I mentioned the you know compared the Speed Twenty and Twenty Five with the uh, SS Ninety and SS One Hundred Jaguars, and uh, the Alvis cars were about double the price of those SS cars, Gee. which looked every bit as smart as the the Alvises, albeit that they weren't as uh, mechanically advanced as the Alvis but uh, no it was a great era um, for the companies that survived the depression because um, that made life, life very difficult for uh, there were what David 4,000 odd car companies I think have come and gone most of them gone mm. in the in the history of motoring since 1885 I think it might be nearer five yeah you're five, right. 5,000 yes yeah it was that adventurous time, wasn't it? It was that derry-do time, that one where the backyard mechanic uh, could think broadly and dabble. Yes. And try things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, as you say, it was people who saw this emerging technology thinking, oh, what can I do? Oh, I think they ought to do that this way and so on. Mm. And they all had a go at it, you know. Mm. And as you say, some did it very well and, uh, and survived. Some did it well and didn't survive. But then the, the big trick, of course, is not in having the ideas. It's making it, uh, mm. getting it into production, doing it in volume and making some money out of it. And that's the trickiest part of the whole business. I think it's like a dot-com boom in a way. Uh, well, exactly. It's, we're seeing exactly the same thing now. As we saw, if you like, from 1885 to the 1930s, you know, and then early post-war. Um, the emergence of this technology, how should we do it? What should we do? What do people need? What can we sell? Well, as I said, uh, we get uh, some great motor historians and commentators such as yourself, and the subject will wander and uh, touch many <laughs> wonderful things. Will, I appreciate your time greatly. I'm honoured to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And that's Will Hagen. We were talking, well, to start with, about SU Carburettors led to Alvis cars, which can lead to anything. Six degrees of separation. You can hear the longer interview with Will on our website. Go to drivenmedia.com.au.